0: Dudley clinton is a former national reporter and editorial writer for the New York Times. He is editor of a book of essays, The Prevailing South, and author of the text for a book of photographs entitled Homeless in America. He is co-author of the book Out for Good, The Struggle to Build a Gay Rights Movement in America. His recent book, A Place Called Canterbury, Tales of the New Old Age in America, offers a beautifully written, often hilarious, and deeply moving look at old age and the new millennium. Dudley Clendenning spoke at the National Academy's Tech Center in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, October 14, 2008. The event was sponsored by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences. I appreciate the invitation to be here. I'm very flattered and fluffed up to be um, at the, asked to speak at the National Academy of Sciences. Um, this is a place in which I sort of assume um, people dwell who understand you know such immutable things as the laws of nature, um, laws of physics, for instance, which actually I don't understand. But I thought I, in deference to um, the place and those people who labor here and who have been here at this microphone, I should at least pretend um, to speak scientifically. And so I thought, I'll choose a law of physics, um, gravity. Uh, as in, um, I have many friends who write books um, on important and compelling and fascinating and readable um, and utterly perhaps irrelevant but still readable uh, subjects. Many of them um, come to the subjects from a sense of their own keen intellect and because they have a very good working knowledge of how a part of the world works. Um, and so when they see or perceive a change in how it works, or when they realize that a large portion of people don't understand how a part of the culture works, they write a book to explain it, to clarify it, to help us understand. Perhaps also to win a Pulitzer Prize, sell lots of books, and get rich and famous. Um, I know a surprising number of people who've actually done this. Um, This being Washington, you may also. Um, I operate a different way um, by the law of gravity. Occasionally life falls on me. Some of you may be familiar with the same phenomenon. It seems to start most often in middle age, but for some of us who are troubled adolescents, it starts earlier on. life falls on you, maybe not all at once, maybe in a series of sort of collapses, and um, eventually at least it gets my attention, and I sort of look up stunned and realize that something on the horizon has changed. Um, My world has been reordered in some way. My understanding of my life has been reordered in some way. Um, Sometimes it's a physical change in the world in which I live, or the people, or in the people with whom I live, Sometimes it's more, um, a realization of a sort of irresistible truth. Um, and because I'm, um, more gut than intellectual, I end up writing books in that way. The one before was called, um, Out for Good, the struggle to build a gay rights movement in America. It came about for that sort of set of reasons. Um, at, uh, in, um, Oh, in my 20s, actually in my late teens, I um, dropped out of college and joined the Army and went to basic training, which was a Southern notion of therapy, uh, Southerners having no notion of actual therapy. Um, uh, in my mid-40s, that didn't seem such a workable idea, so I, so I found myself a wonderful psychotherapist, um, which is a kind of pseudoscience, as you, as you probably all understand, but which is a lot faster than psychiatry. Um, and. Um, as a result of that, I uh, quit drinking, quit being married, um, and um, found a wonderful co-author and Adam Nagurney, who's the chief political writer of the New York Times, and together we spent seven years and wrote a book which didn't exist, which is a major history of the gay rights movement called Out for Good, The Struggle to Build a Gay, gay Rights Movement in America. Um, um, Simon & Schuster was the publisher, and they did nominate it for a Pulitzer Prize, which it did not win. I also didn't sell a lot of books to make either one of us rich or famous. Um, But it left us feeling clarified and sort of glad that we'd done it. And I realized um, that was in the period of the mm, second two-thirds of the 90s. And um, it was at the same time that members of my own family began to follow the law of gravity and sort of fall on me. Um, I was living then in New York and also in Baltimore. I'm from Tampa. And I realized when I was in New York and people would ask me what I was doing, and I would say I was working on a gay rights history, um, they would say, oh, cool, good idea, you know. Uh, important, we need it, sell a lot of books. Well, um, in Baltimore, um, where I lived and spent a lot of time among the Jewish community, I'd, they'd ask someone would what I was doing, and I'd say I was working on a history of the gay rights movement, and they'd say, that's interesting. Um, how is it like or different from the... Um, What happened with us with jews or with women or with african americans um and in tampa when i'd go home to a city which was very much a small southern city when i was growing up and um which is among at least my parents generation and my generation still very much a southern city and i'd see some friend of my parents and he said well hello dudley how are you what is what are you doing now where are you living i say baltimore I said what are you doing and i would say i'm working on a history of the gay rights movement and they say, Oh, really? Oh. Well, um, how's your mother? People all my life have been asking me about my mother. Sometimes they do it because they don't, they think it's the only bond we have. You know, they know her. Everyone I knew knew her. People I didn't know knew her. Um, uh, or they didn't want to talk about what I wanted to talk about. Um but it was she was a force and a presence and so they would say, How's your mother? Well, uh I'm slow but I'm not clueless. This book is about my mother. Um it's not actually just about my mother, though it is a woman um who grew old but still indomitable, charming, uh kind of bedazzling intelligent, adorable, um, um, endlessly uncomplaining, uh, skillfully manipulating and controlling um, uh, and able to get you to move around the board like a chess piece if she wished you to, mostly without you realizing it, um, both children and friends and acquaintances, um, generous, charitable, beloved, maddening, um, infuriating, you know, a mother. Um, it's about her and her son, her poor, rueful, befuddled, um, challenged son who realizes at a certain point when his mother is in her mid-80s and his father is dead that she wants to live life in a way that in fact she no longer sensibly can or even safely can. And so it's a story about us, us children and our mothers, more broadly about us children, us dreadfully named boomers, and our parents the burdensomely named greatest generation. Mostly it's about our fathers too, but less emphatically because mostly by the time they reach what I call the new old age, meaning the new decade at the end of life, the gift of medical science. and advances in public health um... the population the fathers are gone the population is two-thirds or three-quarters women um... it's an age at which gravity has taken its toll um... you know when we're that age um... our noses are and our ears are impossibly big our eyes gets ridiculously small our hair gets thin, which is one reason, if you hadn't thought about it, that so women, so many women of elder age have bouffant blue hair. It's very hard to see that you're bald underneath the helmet of bouffant blue hair. Um, it's an age in which one doesn't hear as well, one doesn't see as well, in which the skin loses its sensation of touch, in which people lose, in other words, many of their physical connections to the world, the ability of the feet to feel the ability of the legs to stand firmly and with equilibrium all those things Um, and yet they are thanks to us thanks to medical science and public health you know still very much alive and have an uncertain number of days and years to live and so the question becomes where with whom and how and we children get drawn into the equation Um, I realize there might be a book in this when um, I realized that what my friends and I, uh, in my mid-50s, when what my friends and I talked about a lot, consumingly, was our parents. They were driving us crazy, um, all of us, uh, and we all had this sort of what to do about mother or dad. Um, this began to happen, you know, realizations dawned over time. My first um, sort of experience with old age, you know, was with grandparents. I had two of them, two grandmothers. My grandfathers were both dead when I was born. And um, grandmama, my father's mother, uh, who had a genetic strain I didn't realize at the time, but um, over time came to, Shirley Jackson wrote a short story once called, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. One in my father's family, we have always been demented, um, at least past a certain age. Um, Grandmama got to be, I'd always thought of her as kind of nice and dull, and, and then gradually I realized she'd gotten to be a lot of fun. Uh, we'd go out to dinner to Morrison's, which was a cafeteria in the South, where you'd choose your meal from a line, and then the waiters would bring it over, and it had the advantage of being tasty and southern and cheap. And um, my aunts, my crazy aunts, Bessie and Carolyn, who had moved in from the country but never really arrived in the city, would take us. Uh, Us being my grandmother, their mother, and me at the age of, say, eight or nine or ten. And um, we'd have dinner, and um, then they'd go to get the car leaving, grandmama and me to wait for them. And grandmama would turn to me and say, who were those women? (laughs) And I would sort of, I thought, this is fun. And she would say, are we going in to eat now? And I said, no, we've just been in to eat, and you had biscuits, and I had biscuits, and, you know, and she's, oh, good. Um, she would come to dinner and very carefully take out her teeth and lay them on the table beside the plate as we began the salad, you know. Uh, and I thought, Grandmama is getting to be fun. Um, much later, my cousin Florence, um, who was... Um, an older cousin, and who was the intellect of our family, um, a University of Chicago graduate. She was the fierce liberal of our family. Um, she was. She and Louis um, were childless. He worked for the United Nations. They lived all over the world. Um, um, she was a founding member of Planned Parenthood, a graduate of the U- University of Chicago School of Social Work, a charter subscriber to the New Yorker and had a, a phenomenally large, no-bullshit detector, and, a, um, and an implacable view of the world. And she would say, more people have been killed in the name of religion than for any other reason. She would say, i wow, I hadn't thought about that. This was early on, um, before the rise of the religious right in this country. Um, she was first to say to me, what do you believe in? And I thought, well, you know, doing good, being honest. Um, being polite, and I didn't really want to say that, that sounded so wimpish, and she said, after I bumbled around, she said, if you don't know what you believe in, you'll never amount to anything. If you don't have a cause, you'll never succeed, which I thought was a really rude comment. Um, as time went on, I came to understand what she meant. Um, she was indomitable, and she um, was on lots of boards and commissions after they retired to Clearwater, Florida, and um, she always said, if life ever ceases to be worth living, I have the means right here in my bedside table, by which she meant a vial of secanol, which her doctor had prescribed for her at her request. Um, and after Louis died, she said, you know, someday I'm going to decide. We all knew that. She was a paid up member of the Hemlock Society. Um problem is, if you live a really vital life and have lots of boards and commissions and projects and films you want to see and books you want to read and friends you want to have dinner with and, and other people you might even want to kiss and cuddle, um, then no day seems like the one on which you want to end it. And um, so she didn't, and she had the misfortune of her brain outlived her body. Her will, her spirit outlived her biology, and um, she was suddenly bedridden. Her lungs had failed. And um, I went to see her in the hospital and said, if you um, need me sometime later, call me. Um, she said, thank you, we'll see. Um, she uh, was released on hospice care and went home. Um, and paramedics left her. The, the hospice nurses would arrive in the morning. Her sister-in-law was there. Florence asked for a bourbon and water. Dot brought it to her. Dot left the room. Close the door, Florence took a big gulp of sequinol and bourbon water to accelerate the, you know, the action of the pills. Conked out and gasped and rasped and gurgled and wheezed for hours while Dot sat outside the door and thought, Oh, God, um, do I call the paramedics? Do I not call the paramedics? She won't want me to. She'll kill me if I call them and they save her life. So she did, and in the morning, Florence woke up and said, Oh, damn, I botched it. Um... And then she called me, and so we conspired for over a period of months to see if there was some way I could help her kill herself because hospice had arrived, taken her pills, and she couldn't get out of bed and go to the kitchen where they were. And of course, they'd thrown away the sleeping Um We couldn't figure out a way. Um, Hemlock. You know, doctors I knew said, "Well, I don't want to prescribe you any more pills." They didn't know her, and she her intent was already clear. Um, you didn't want to be the name on the prescription they said go on the street and buy them I said ask for what they said well reds or blacks I said where and they said well you know where people sell pills on the street um I couldn't figure out how to do that I called the hemlock society and the man there who might have been the president it's not a big organization said well, you could put a plastic bag over her head um I said I did not sign up to murder her I, I love her I want to help her um she finally said, what do you think will happen if um, we just let nature take its course? And I said, I think you'll die of pneumonia. And she said, pneumonia, that's not so bad. She said, never mind the other. I won't have you involved. It took two more years for her to die. She was living in her own house at the cost of $15,000 a month with round the clock care, uh, keeping her alive, which was not her intent. Um, in the same period, my aunts Bessie and Carolyn began to fail. They were... Um, much less smart than Florence but in some ways more fun um they were both certifiably nuts um they were old spinster sisters who'd each been married a short period of time uh, in Bessie's case to a man who stayed so briefly that no one even remembered him um, later or or did he leave a photograph of any kind I never heard anyone talk about him Um, and um, Carolyn who married quite late in life um, in her 50s to the man who she explained when I asked her why she married him said because he neither drank, smoked, nor swore. Um, I don't know what else he did because he died six months later. He was 86. Um, and but she had the marriage of her choice for a brief period of time. And then they resumed living together, which they had always done. And um, Bessie had electroshock treatments in the 50s and 60s. My mother took her. And it was the kind of town of which one of the doctors in the hospital who is a friend of my family's would walk through the waiting room and uh, the waiting room board would say, um, there's a register of those coming in for electric shock and it said B. Clendenin. My mother was Barbara Clendenin my aunt was Bessie Clendenin and the doctor whose name was Brown Farrier kind of a fussy formal man looked at the board and looked at my mother and looked at the board and looked at my mother and said well Bobby dear, do you think they're helping? Mother said, yes, Brown, I think they are. Thank you. Uh, she had enough presence not to be spooked. She didn't mind if he thought that she was getting electroshock treatments. She knew things about him and his family, too. It was, you know, people in cities of that size in those days all thought they knew each other and all about each other, and sometimes they did. Um, my Aunt Carolyn, I discovered after my father died, um, had been committed to the state, the Florida State Asylum for the Insane at Chattahoochee, um, as a religious nut. If you can imagine how much of a religious nut you would have had to be in the South in the 1920s to be committed to the state madhouse. Um, the Florida State Asylum for the Insane at Chattahoochee is a wonderful name. It sounds Faulknerian. It doesn't. It's not called quite that anymore. But that was its name. It existed. And um, on the strength of that demonstration, she they let her out after a while, and she, she was gentled, um, not quite so insistent on converting everyone else in sight. Um, but on the strength of that demonstration, my mother persuaded my father to make her my godmother, so that when I was born, I had my crazy Aunt Carolyn for a godmother. Um, and it was typical of my mother's thinking, so that you should understand her. She believed... She was an incurable romantic. She believed that you could turn always a lemon into lemonade, a ear into a silk purse. And so um, when my father died um, in 1991, and uh, and then um, in the period of four, three years after that, when my cousin Florence began to collapse, and my aunts Bessie and Carolyn began to wander down the street and uh, declined to get out of bed to eat, and my mother had uh, powers of attorney drawn up and I went and and um, uh, living wills and I went over to my aunt's house and spent all the afternoon until they signed them because somebody needs to be in charge when things begin to fall apart and the truth was they were probably already so demented that um, a lawyer, if there were a lawyer, to argue... You know the other position could easily say they didn't realize what they were signing well they probably didn't but it was a good thing they did because a month later Bessie almost burned the house down and Carolyn somehow dragged her out and at midnight in the hospital my mother said I guess we'll have to take them home And I said no we won't Um, I put them in a nursing home Um, I had power of attorney It was the only thing to do it was the wrong thing to do it was the wrong nursing home it was the right thing to do but it was the wrong place i didn't know anything we aren't trained for these moments we aren't trained for these these crises in families for these dilemmas um it turned out to be a place um it was a place where my mother-in-law's mother had been and they had money so i thought it was good what did i know um what I didn't know was that they didn't know any more than I did, and so it wasn't a good place. Um, most families don't know very well how to choose a place. Um, but by 1994, um, my aunts and Florence were all in nursing homes and diminishing, and the, the issue became my mother. Um, I want to read you a small passage. My mother was frail, given her deteriorating bone structure and fainting spells. She was fainting and falling down the stairs of her beloved house and knew she needed support and would need more. But my father would never consider Canterbury. It depressed him. Canterbury was a place where I thought she ought to be. She knew people. Um, it was like a good apartment hotel with a nursing wing, um, full of her friends, very good care not far away, on Tampa Bay. I don't want to be around all those old people, my father said. After he died, I worked on Mother to make the move. It took three years. I never knew what finally persuaded her. She was very stubborn. But when she saw what happened to Bessie and Carolyn and to Florence and watched me deal with them, she decided in early 1994 to make out a living will and to grant me her power of attorney. And that November, she moved to Canterbury. I didn't realize, even after all my prodding and research into comparative costs and services and interviews with friends whose parents had granted them power of attorney and long memos about all of this to mother, what a change it would make. But the move began not just a very different phase of her life and her expectations of it, but also of our relationship. And more important, who was supposed to be in charge. Mothers like mine, Southern mothers of a generation that was raised to flatter men, to reflect their identity, but in fact to manipulate and control them and the families they produced, did not teach their children to take over when the time came. They didn't want to be taken over. They might want to be waited on. They might want to be provided for, but that wasn't the same thing. And so we began a very complicated dance, a polite informal sort of minuet, round and round in which she, as usual, tried to exercise the lead without seeming to and I, without seeming to, tried to take the lead without stepping on her feet. My mother was an artful and enormously stubborn person. She had been very resistant to Canterbury and she had the the option that women in her situation often do, of stalling on decisions. Husbands frequently have no choice. God or nature snatches them away years before they might have moved, but widows usually can choose or not to give up the houses that have been their homes, their nests, and chief creations, and it can be a hard choice to make. When Mother finally did agree, she had a troop of friends already at Canterbury, but our particular luck was that Helen Hogan Hill, a widow and family friend who had moved from Marietta, Georgia, into the north front apartment on the fifth floor 16 years before. When she decided that she was tired and ready to be pampered, Helen had decided to move again, this time to a smaller apartment. Helen had always been glad of her decision to sell her house in Georgia and go to Canterbury, where there was a whole staff of people to take care of her. When I realized I wasn't in charge anymore, she said, I felt better. She decided she would feel better yet if she spent less money each month so she gave up her two-bedroom, two-bath apartment and moved three floors down to a one-bedroom unit overlooking the building's entrance. Now she could keep tabs on everyone coming in or going out of the front doors. For her signature on a contract, $88,000 in cash and $1,505 a month, my mother took apartment 502, Helen's old space. It landed her by luck of the draw in the middle of what I came to think of as I visited and listened on the phone to her tales of life at Canterbury as a special kind of soap opera. As the years passed, the courage and grace and willingness to change that are required to negotiate passage through this new old age began to seem an exquisitely poignant and gritty and dear kind of odyssey to me. Our parents were increasingly what my friends and contemporaries and I talked about, Their drama had become the central drama of our lives, too. It was a drama and a comedy that I felt a part of and that I wanted to be more of. The feeling grew, and after a time, I decided that there was a book of tales in Canterbury about a new time in life, and that I should try to be there with mother and her friends as much as possible to experience it and to tell it. It has taken a while. I have now lived part-time in Canterbury in that stubby little building on the bay since the beginning of this century with a crowd of people I have come to know as brave and pithy and funny, but, um, not young, and who have to flip the levers on their mailboxes in the lobby each morning to let the front desk know that they're still alive. I was 55 when I started this experience. The average age in Canterbury is 86. That's a difference. But I wanted to know what it was like to live out the new old age, roughly, the new last decade that advances in modern medicine and public health have given to the generation of the Great Depression and World War II, and perhaps also to us, their children, and to our children, and all who follow. I wanted to experience growing older in America as it more often happens today, in ways that are so different from when our parents' own parents grew old. I have been at it now since January 1st, 2000. In that time, particularly in the first five years, I spent almost 400 days and nights living at Canterbury, the life of Canterbury. I still go. And as time passed, the residents of the building and the people who cared for them, people like Murphy, the maintenance man and bus driver who was from rural southern Illinois, Chan, the senior dining room waitress a refugee from Vietnam, Carlos, the security chief, a retired U.S. Army first sergeant from Puerto Rico, and Ernestine, who sang songs of love and spiritual comfort to the oldest and sickest residents, songs she both made up and learned in church and on the farms across the bay, to which her parents brought her from Mississippi when she was young, came to regard me with a kind of tolerant curiosity. We grew familiar to one another and also fond. We have drinks, we have meals, we do our laundry. We spend time in the hospital, the nursing wing, the church, the bar, and the temple. We laugh and we get sad. We talk about children, work, health, fear, love, and money. We share the stories of our lives. There are people there I have known all my life to whom I feel very close. There are people I've met and have grown to like or to love. Some are really funny. Some are deeply dramatic and wise. Some are simply interesting. Some aren't easily loved. But I set out to be their diarist and chronicler. As my mother's son and custodian, I discovered how unprepared I was for this experience and for my responsibilities in it. As a writer, I discovered that none of us is prepared. No generation before has lived so long, accumulated so much, grown so independent in old age, or become so demented as have our parents. No generation of children has ever been as large as ours, the baby boomers, or as dazzled and daunted and consumed by the apparently endless old age of parents as we have been by ours. Year by year, the new old age draws more of us into it, it is a growing national set of tales, and this, as well as I can fashion it, is the very personal story of that time at just one place called Canterbury. Um, Canterbury is 15 stories tall <clears throat> on the bay, an arm of Tampa Bay. It's actually 14 stories because, of course, it has no 13th floor, um, for the same reason that nobody in the building has black cats um, and um it has 125 apartments, which is small, so everyone can feel they know each other, even if they can't remember each other's names or each other's the facts of each other's lives all the time. It feels sort of tribal, uh, sort of like an extended family. And extending out from the building, which is in the form of a, a squat cube, um, is the nursing wing. Two floors, 60 beds. So you live like this for as long as you can. With a swimming pool and a library that is stocked with the wall street journal the new york times and the latest books most of them conservative and sort of patriotic but um uh and other magazines and a little general store and a little gym <clears throat> and a dining room where they serve wine with a meal every night um and a social lounge um, and an auditorium um and a, and a and a hairdressing salon which is essential because women of that generation don't do their hair, they get their hair done. Um, um, Sometimes some women make appointments with their hairdressers for after they die so that when they die, their hair will be done and they'll look their best at their last great social occasion in an open casket ceremony. Um, um, It's a place which is self-contained. Some people never leave the building. Some people have elaborate lives out of the building. Um, some people have second homes and go to symphony and to dinner and have cocktails and love affairs if they're interested and can catch somebody or be chased and caught and some do and some are um, they fight with their children if they have husbands old husbands and wives they fight with each other um, they live a life which is um, which nobody feels wonderful every morning and most everyone is surprised to wake up in fact every morning the average age being 86 um, And no one knows how long it extends Um, but they you make a life because you're there Um, our science has enabled us to be there and um, and so night sometimes as one husband said to me you know it's like this she said we get in bed we take out our hearing aids we yell at each other and we go to sleep um, mother didn't want to go there. Um, first she didn't want to go because of my father, um, who didn't want to go. <clears throat> then she didn't want to go because she loved being independent and she loved her house. <sighs> Houses are the nests, the accumulations of our life experience, you know. Particularly for women who survive of that generation who survived their husbands. She took the to falling down the stairs. She would call me and we would talk and she would tell me these funny stories of falling down the stairs and um, or the car beginning to bump into things or she would call one night and said she was looking forward to going out to dinner she was at her dressing table dressing for dinner she went out to dinner and had lunch and almost every day she had a very elaborate social and cultural schedule um um, she'd done a lot of things in her life she'd helped integrate the ywca when she was chairman it was her project so she was always busy and one night she called and said i'm going out to do a Conchita and Jean, dear, it'll be lovely. I haven't seen them in a while. She said, oh, this is that noise downstairs. She said, I bet it's the burglars again. She said, oh, but don't worry, though. She said, they'll just take this over. That's what they did last time. They don't come upstairs. Um, I um, can't say that I didn't worry. I wasn't always reassured by these phone calls. Um, and so I gradually tried to get her to go into Canterbury. And then when she did go finally into Canterbury, um, then she would call and, and uh, tell me stories about life there. And we'd have these wonderful conversations in which it more and more seemed like a sort of radio soap opera. Um, the life she described, um, the fights, the love affairs, the competitions, um, the funny things. She and Elizabeth, her great friend, um, she said, Oh, I think I know. I met your, Whitney is my daughter. She said, I met Whitney's doctor the other night. He has a restaurant. We went to the restaurant. We went to a film. And I said, How'd you meet him? She said, In the restaurant after the film, I'm sure. I said, I don't know that he works in the restaurant, Mother. He's a Doctor, he has to get up early probably. She said, oh, no, I'm sure we met him. I said, you went back to the film, uh, we went back to the restaurant after dinner for a brandy or something. She said, oh, no, wasn't that, There's just something about the car. I said, oh, really? She said, yes, but never mind that. I said, oh, but what about the car? With mothers, you know, when they say never mind, there's always a story. And she said, oh, well, it was just, uh, we we couldn't use it. I said, really, why not? She said, well, um... I couldn't, I wasn't able to drive it. And so we went back to the restaurant to make a phone call. I said, it wouldn't start? She said, well, it wasn't that exactly. I said, well, um, you, had you locked yourself out? And she said, well, uh, not precisely. She said, well, this is tiresome, dear. Let's not talk about this. I said, oh, but we're almost there. Let's finish. I said, um, was the, you were not locked out? She said, well, no, we weren't locked out. But it, I said, but you couldn't get in? She said, no. I said, why not? She said, well, it was too hot. And I said, too hot? I said, you mean the car was still running after dinner in a two-and-a-half-hour movie? And she said, well, it was then. She said, but then it stopped, and we had to have it towed. You know, she was very cross. Um, she never, she didn't understand machines. She didn't mate well with them. Um, life had begun to get kind of funny and cracked like her. She tilted in two different directions. She had very bad osteoporosis and arthritis. Uh, but her mind was still good. She worried, though, about her blood pressure. And... Um, and I, I, I didn't know really the, why she was worried, uh, because she never talked much about that. She would sometimes say, oh, i you know, the funniest thing, I've broken another two vertebrae. She said, it's, it's so wonderful that so many years passed and, uh, I haven't broken it in 14 years and if I hadn't stopped taking the estrogen, I would, that I wouldn't have broken this one. But the estrogen had started her menstrual periods again, which were so heavy that it made her anemic, which made her faint, which made her fall down the stairs. Science is complicated in old age. So she stopped taking the estrogen, and then her vertebrae began to crumble again. Um, and so finally she had moved to Canterbury. Um, and she was actually very happy there until um, just before Easter, the night before Easter, and she had a stroke. Um, I flew down, and we had the most interesting conversation. She was in a coma for three days and came out of the coma and um, uh, popped up and uh, began criticizing the decor of the hospital room. Um, She said, that really is dreadful. I like that down. And um, so the nurse and I took it down. And we had strange conversations for a week. She would say to me, how come you know so much about me? And I would say, I just find you fascinating. I've been studying you all my life. And we would go on, each of us trying to figure out how much the other knew. after a week, she had a second stroke, a clot, and that really undid what she had left and Then she moved into the nursing wing at Canterbury and I began to go down more frequently and i be- and I decided after she didn't die because we thought she would in the coma, and she didn't and I thought we thought she would after the second stroke because the doctor said, um, you know she can't survive long, not being able to do anything for herself, she'll aspirate something or she'll get a you know, an infection of some kind, and then you'll have to decide about an antibiotic, and she probably won't last more than six months. But she did. And so finally I decided to do what I thought thought of doing, which was to try to write a book about this new time. And so I arrived January 1st of 2000 with a bag full of notebooks, and I began to spend a lot of time at canterbury and um, um, and the life went something like this, and we also began every once in a while to give mother last communion because she would appear to be dying again, she would stop eating or she would develop some infection, and My sister would say she would like last communion, and so the priest would come and clink his little bottles of you know of the wafers and wine, and she would perk up and look wonderful as if she was having a social hour and um, enjoy it a lot and the priest would leave and mother would be better and then after a while she would appear to be dying again And the priest the priest retired uh, Mother kept dying and reviving and lived and I began to spend a lot of time there one afternoon as I took the tower elevator down <coughs> a White-haired woman with glasses got on almost all women at Canterbury have gray or white hair and wear glasses She smiled we said hello and began to descend Then the elevator stopped again. A mild white-haired man with glasses got on. Almost all men at Canterbury have white hair, spare hair, or no hair, and wear glasses. The men sometimes complain that they can't tell the old ladies apart because they all have white hair and glasses. The women sometimes say the same thing about the men, but not so often because there are fewer of them, and the added feature of male baldness helps to sort them out. Nice to see you, Fred, the woman said in a neighborly way. He smiled. She paused and then asked, How's Helen? He blinked and continued to smile but didn't answer. He appeared to be thinking about something. She waited. Not everyone at Canterbury hears very well. How's Helen, Fred, she asked again, a little louder, as the elevator dropped slowly down. He looked uncertain, as if preoccupied by some other question she tried a bright smile and more projection I was asking about your wife Helen she said propelling the words as she leaned toward him he was silent a moment and then quietly with an expression that suggested he found this uncomfortable replied that's not her name oh I'm sorry she said recoiling with a small gasp and a rueful look I've gotten so bad with names Fred forgive me what is her name He looked at her absently as if he were trying to make up his mind about something. The elevator was descending. She glanced up at the floor numbers flashing above them. Four, three, two. She wanted desperately to get the name right next time, and they were almost at the lobby. Your wife, Fred, what's her name? The doors opened. I'm thinking, he said. On a different day, I headed into the elevator in shorts and a t-shirt for a long, fast walk along the sidewalk by the bay. I used to run for miles down that concrete, which is probably what happened to my knees. Now I walk. I heard steps coming down the hall, so I held the elevator door and the Duchess came in. It is an earned title. In the funny nomenclature of Canterbury, the residents are inmates a name they give themselves in acknowledgment of the fact that once paid in, they probably will never leave. It would cost them money. But they also give each other nicknames, and the Duchess is what her inmate friends called Marguerite Dressler, formerly of Jacksonville, in honor of her sense of style. The Duchess had an eye for things, and as she stood next to me that morning, a tall, glossy vision in black and white with her big signature earrings glinting boldly at the neck, she was eyeing me. You stay in good shape, she said, approvingly, her large, dark eyes roaming beneath arched, dramatic eyebrows. You look real fit. You exercise, don't you? I felt, under her gaze, sort of like a lamb chop. It felt nice. Well, I try, I said. I thought so, she replied, her long fingers and lacquered nails sliding over her silver-headed cane, the eyes still moving up and down. You're nice and lean. You've got curves in all the right places. I have male friends who would kill to start their days like this. Thanks, I said, with rising feeling, you're looking pretty smashing yourself. With her mass of silver hair, her long cheekbones and good skin and big sexy jewelry, she did. Especially for a dame in her early eighties with a weak heart and osteoporosis. We stood there a moment, warming in mutual regard. And then the elevator hit her floor. She threw me a wink and sashayed out, leaving us both feeling better, foxier, more desirable than before. Some months later, as Miss Dressler reclined in a chair in a nearby salon, having her toenails cut and polished and painted to complement her shoes, the pedicurist looked up and realized that her client had departed. The Duchess's inquiring but tired heart had stopped. Things then got very busy. This was Florida. It was a good salon. The pedicurist had training in cardiopulmonary resuscitation. She started mouth-to-mouth. Mouth. Someone called 911. An ambulance came screaming to the door. For two weeks, lying in a stationary hospital bed with monitors beeping and an oxygen tube up her nose, the duchess made no sense. This ship isn't moving, she declared, when her Canterbury neighbor, Martha Cameron, then 83, went to see her. We must be in the Arctic Circle." She had been there on a cruise ship with her sister, Millie, the widow of a bank chairman. But Miss Cameron, the nurse, one of the first women ashore at Utah Beach after D-Day, knew that her friend was reacting to the cold oxygen flowing up her nose. The Duchess thought she was stuck in an ice floe. Miss Dressler still doesn't remember the events of that day. But gradually, with therapy and care in Canterbury's nursing wing, her strength and the twinkle in her eye returned. She moved back into her apartment, and one night, at dinner, at a table looking out over the bay, after cocktails upstairs at her friend Colonel Cameron's, she sat in a long black sheath with a slit up the left leg and a huge red silk rose from Saxworth Avenue at her breast and said that she had made a decision. I always saved for later on, she said, a true child of the Depression, but later on is now um that's what they all feel at canterbury they've arrived at a place um, that they have to realize they don't know the rules for there aren't any rules there don't seem to be any boundaries and and so people choose where to live quite often not with us children some do but they're the they're the generation which has social security and they were the first to have the inflationary increases in social security the first generation perhaps to be fully vested in and the first generation also to get the benefits of the pensions which corporations began, um, programs which began when they were in their young working life. And many of them had bought homes when they came back from World War II because the government in the creation of the FHA and the Veterans Administration helped them buy houses. And the houses grew in value and they traded up and got bigger houses. And so they have equity and monthly income even if they don't have stocks and bonds. To afford to live someplace besides with us children, which is the way parents used to live and die when they got old, they move in with the children. They don't all want to be with us children, so I've discovered, you know, they may love us, um, but they like being someplace else, either because they don't want to spoil the relationship with us because they do like us, or because they don't like us and don't want to be with us, or because they like us but don't want to be controlled by us, or because they don't trust us to know what to do with them. They're right. They shouldn't trust us to know what to do with them. We don't know what to do with them. It's an experience that's difficult to learn. Um and so they move many of them in, in increasing numbers into post retirement places like Canterbury, which in this case is a non profit standalone um um sort of community and church organized uh facility. But it's wonderful in being small and in being diverse. It's full not just of the Episcopalians who created it, but of Jews, Roman Catholics, fundamentalists, other Protestants, Baptists, agnostics, one really scrappy, determined, smart, and raunchy atheist and um, with whom I came to stay as the years passed by. It has people who are wealthy, people who are upper and middle class, People who are, uh, shabby, genteel, increasingly, as my mother came increasingly to be as the years passed since she continued to live. They will take care of you even if you run out of money until you die. If you can walk in the door under your own power, um, and pay the monthly tab, pay, give them a chunk of money at first, seem to be a good, uh, physical bet, meaning walk in the door if you're finances past muster so long as you don't give away your assets or squander them gamble them um, or lose them somehow um, that's the contract and so people live for a long time and many of them are people I've known all my life um, southerners dotty old southerners who make great narrative many come from other places Eastern Europe New England the Northeast the Mid-Atlantic the West Mexico um, the Philippines the residents are brown and white the staff is brown and black and yellow and tan it's an upstairs downstairs tale and two generations and um, and one never knows what one is about to find I'll read you one last short passage um, it's about a neighbor man named Wilbur and it will give you I think this is about gravity if you will and you'll see what I mean um, and uh, it's about the mystery of old age, which is what I found so interesting and so compelling in the imagination um, that comes to play. Um, one night, coming back into the building after 10 p.m. in the months after my mother's strokes, I walked through the electric front doors, and there was Wilbur. The building is essentially shut down by that time of night. The dining room is closed. The people who are out to dinner are back in. The movie and the social lounge is over. The people in the nursing wing are asleep. Everyone in the tower is upstairs, most of them in bed. But Wilbur was standing in front of the elevators, tilted a little to the right, peering this way and that. It wasn't just his car that he couldn't find anymore. He was looking for Mary. He'd just left her upstairs, but he didn't realize that. When Wilbur looked away or stepped away, sometimes he didn't remember that Mary was right there, his wife Mary, in another room in their apartment up on the fifth floor. He just remembered Mary and then he missed her. He had begun to go looking. He was looking for the life he'd had. I had known him since I was a boy of four and he was Nathalie's father, a man of 40. We had lived just one house apart in the old neighborhood which had begun as a street of new houses of husbands like him not long back from the war and their soft, newly or once again pregnant wives and their children, Nathalie and Carla, little t and me. Wilbur had known all the ways in which I was trouble from the day we moved on to that street in 1948 until the last decade when he began to forget. But his eyes lit up when he saw me coming into the lobby at Canterbury that night, and he blinked, trying to remember who I was and where we were and just when in his life this night might be. How old are you now, he asked, rocking gently, his bright blue eyes peering at me. His hair had turned silver, and he was shorter and smaller, droopier than he was when he gardened all the time. Fifty-three, I said, standing beside him. Wilbur was astounded. In his mind, I think, I was probably still the neighborhood boy, the rebellious teenager, the hell-bent young man whose features he could see behind my softer, fuller, current face. Oh, come on, he said, laughing a little. You're pulling my leg. No, I assured him. I was fifty-three. He frowned and blinked and began to calculate. Well, then I must be, I must be. His lips were moving, counting numbers. I'm over 100. He gasped, marveling at such a thing. I tried to tell him that he wasn't, that he was 88, but Wilbur had gotten very deaf. He refused to wear his hearing aids, and he was absorbed in his calculations. He stared at the floor and then looked up, eyes agleam. He seemed to have made a great discovery. No, no, I'm... I'm older than that, he declared, pausing as he worked it out. I'm, I'm, well, I'm a thousand years old. He was agog at the realization and in a way delighted. And then something else, something delicious occurred to him. He grinned and pulled me close. And you know what, he said, his eyes wildly bright and merry, my pecker still gets hard. This seemed potential great news for generations of other aging males, if not for his wife, Mary. And I was trying to think of the appropriate response when I heard the night security guard, a man only in his 60s, sigh loudly from behind the front desk. He had been taking in this conversation. Better than mine, he said sorrowfully to himself. I left the two of them to wherever the conversation was going to go from there and took the elevator up. This may seem odd to you. It did to me. But i began to think that night that i had never felt so alive in a way as i did when i was staying at canterbury where everyone else is so very old my mother had been stricken i was being drawn into a place where many people were diminished and yet life had never seemed more original or surprising or imagination more real it felt the way my mother had raised me to think of life as a novel at canterbury i felt as if i were living simultaneously in the future, in the past, with possibilities I didn't know existed. I was in the realm of thousand-year-old men with erections. What else was there to know? Thank you very much.